I'll be looking at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. And uh, I want to talk with you this morning for a while about defeating giants in your life. I know none of you have that problem or you ever feel like you're in a tight spot or a place where things don't seem to be going right. But listen to what it, the man says in chapter 17. King Saul and the Israelites drew up to their battle line to meet the Philistines. I'm just giving you excerpts right here. And they have a champion named uh, Goliath, and he comes out of the camp, and he's over nine feet tall. So listen to what he says. He said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And when the Israelites saw this giant of a man, they ran from him in fear. And then if you quickly go to David, David said to King Saul, who was king of Israel, he said, let no one lose heart on the account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out to fight him. But then Saul's words to him were, you're but a boy. The Lord, David said, will deliver me from his hand. And then Goliath comes back. He says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Come here and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beast of the field. And then David he said, you come against me with a sword and a spear, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And as he moved closer to attack him, David, the Bible said, ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. And he slings his stone and strikes the Philistine in the forehead. And it sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground, and so David triumphed over Goliath with a sling and a stone. What a powerful message we have in these few scriptures. So that's what I want to share with you this morning about a teenager named David, the young man who faces one-on-one -on -one this big man named Goliath. Probably everyone in here has heard this story. Even if you wasn't brought up in church, most people know something about David and Goliath. Millions of people carry the name David. Uh, some it's a first name, others it's a middle name. Thousands of, of flagpoles in Israel and here in this country carry a flag with the star of David on it. 56 chapters in the Bible detail events of his life. Michelangelo carved a 14-foot statue out of marble and dedicated it to David. And as well as we know this story, I'm not as interested in how the story goes as I am in learning how can I defeat giants in my life. And of course, this story I said is recorded in this chapter 17. But now, recently, the reason they were scared of the Philistines, I'll give you a little bit of background. The Philistines entered the Iron Age before the Israelites did. Their weapons of war were far superior to the Israelites, and they would put swords on their chariot wheels so that when the chariot riders would go through the, the line of the enemy, it would mow them down like you were cutting grass. But just recently, just before this event, the Philistines' army, the Philistine army had slaughtered 30,000 Israelite soldiers in battle. And now this is still fresh in their minds of these Israelite soldiers, to these Israelite soldiers. And they were greatly afraid of this enemy of God. And what the Philistines were doing on this day was not uncommon. 
rather than putting the whole army into battle, the Philistines would choose one of their champions to go out and taunt and challenge the other army to see if they would send out one of their champions and they would go at it one-on-one. So whichever side won, the losing side would uh, retreat or either surrender. And so the Philistines has, has chosen their champion well. Here's this nine-foot giant, a very skilled warrior, and the taunting and the challenge that he presents to the Israelite army, send somebody out to fight me, but nobody would go. And at this time in the story, David's not even in the picture. Only his brothers were there. But after 30 days, David's dad said, we probably ought to check on your brothers. Why don't you go down to the front line and take them some lunch and bring me back a report. So here's this teenager with his lunch bucket moving toward the front lines and he hears Goliath as he gets closer taunting and cursing the God of Israel and he can't believe his ears. Why isn't somebody doing something about this? So the story picks up in verse 32 and he says to King Saul, he says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul said to David, you, 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 you're not able to go out against this Philistine. You're, you're but a youth, a teenager. And he's a man of war from his youth up. In verse 34 through 37, David said to Saul, he said, your father used to keep his, his father's sheep or your servant. He said, and when a lion and a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, he said, I went out after them and struck them and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose up against me, I caught it by its beard and I struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me out of the paw of the lion and the bear, he'll deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. <clears throat> and walking down toward the battlefield, David pulls out of his sling, pulls out his slingshot, picks up five rocks, puts four of them in his pouch. In verse 43, so the Philistine said to David, Again, I'll read it. Am I a dog that you come with me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. But then let me drop down to verse 46. David said, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I'll strike you and I'll take your head from you. Now this is a, a, a young teenager. And this day I'll give your carcass to the camp of the Philistines, to the birds, and of the air, and the wild beast. And everyone may know that there's a God in Israel. Then all of his, this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. As the man moves closer, Goliath's coming closer to attack David. David runs quickly towards him. Like a missile, that little rock found that one vulnerable spot on his helmet or between his helmet, which was his forehead, and down he goes. And David chops off his head. And what happened next, according to the Bible, verse 51, he walks over to that fallen giant 
and swings and hardly lifts that sword and, and cuts that giant's head off. So, Father God in heaven, we come before you again this morning thanking you for your amazing grace, thanking you that, God, no matter if we're young or old, if we are obeying you as our <clears throat> Lord and Savior, there will be many giants that will come into our lives over our lifetime. But with you at the forefront, the battle is yours. We know that you're God, at least we're supposed to know that, and allow you to work on behalf of our lives to let the Holy Spirit ignite us and that we might get to that place where we allow the Spirit to do his intended work in our lives, that we will know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you're for us and not against us. And because of what your word says, we can learn to trust you in all circumstances. So thank you again, Lord, for this story that's been read over and over again. But yet, Lord, we can learn from it each and every time. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Some would say about this story, yeah, that was then, and God was with him, and God's going to raise him up, and God's going to make him king. And that's true. But the same word of God tells us that this same God will never leave us nor forsake us, that he will be with us to the end of the age. And yes, this is a story of victory. It's a story of the underdog winning. And yet that same God is here on this day in this church to meet us where we stand, to be at our side, whether it's through the thick or the thin. And all of us are going to have our giants. There are going to be some big things and possibly even some dark things or shadows that may block seemingly the, the sun from our sight. But I ask you this morning, who have your giants been? To some, it could be an unfaithful spouse. To other, it could be an abusive parent or a bad boss. And, and what have your giants been? To some, financial giants, career giants, health giants, addiction giants. And these moments when we face our giants, they become defining moments in our lives, like in the, the, the crucible of decision. Will I stand? Will I fall? Will I advance? Will I retreat? So in those crucibles of decisions, we really see who we are and what we're becoming in our walk with Christ Jesus. Some of you have possibly faced giants for a, a long time. And the Israelites, they can relate to that. The Bible says that every day for 40 days, this giant would get up early. He would walk down to the valley. He would stare up at the rocks and, and which, behind which the soldiers were hiding. And he would challenge them. And he would call out and he would taunt them and curse them. He was using psychological warfare. So every day, all day, day after day, trying to wear them down, trying to beat them down, and they stayed back there and hid, and nobody did anything. So by the time David gets on the scene, it was time for somebody to step up and to do something. And that time may have come for you. Your joint giant may have been there for a while. For whatever reason, you may have chosen not to engage in battle with this enemy. But maybe the time has come for you to do something, because giants must be faced and they can be defeated. 
No matter who you are, how long you've been serving the Lord Jesus Christ, there are giants in the land. And giants will come to you whether you've been saved 50 days or 50 years. The enemy of our soul is out to destroy, is out to the kill. If he can't kill us, he will try to defeat us and render us ineffective in our service toward the Lord Jesus Christ. But now David wasn't ready to face Goliath years earlier. He had to be prepared for the task. The Bible says in Samuel 17, 15, that David went out to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. So being a shepherd is not usually the way that you would train to be a giant killer. But giant killers don't start out as giant killers. David was a shepherd. But learning the lessons in the lonely places or the private places, they prepared David for this big battle that was to confront him. And there are other illustrations in the Bible. And one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament is a man by the name of Caleb. And we learned the most about Caleb on his 85th birthday. Here's this 85-year-old man celebrating his birthday. He's standing in line with a group of other people and they're getting ready to choose land where they're going to build their house in retirement and each are going to be given property where they will be able to live. And Caleb, he steps up to choose his property. It's his turn. And there's lots of choices. And the first one was fertile farmland. He could have chosen that. There was smooth, flat land. He could have chosen that area. There was even an inhabited ready to move into land. But you know, when this 85-year-old man steps up and squares his shoulders, impossibly with a glint in his eye, he says, I want you to give me the hill country. Now, everybody knew that giants lived in the hill country. And for Caleb to occupy that land, he first had to chase the giants out. And the Bible says that his eye was not dim. He was just as strong at 85 as he was when he first crossed the Jordan with Moses or the Red Sea with Moses because God was with him. And I'm here to tell you this morning that whether you are 15 or 75, if you put your hand in the hand of the Master Jesus Christ, will use you to his glory and for his honor because God will not be finished with you if you serve him until the breath leaves your body. Amen. But you have to love this 85-year-old giant killer. But when you go back and read the, in the Bible and what you discover is that for 40 years, God had been preparing Caleb for that moment, getting him ready and teaching him lessons of faith, lessons of trust and courage so that when the day came, when he needed to chase the giants out, he was ready to do so. So the same thing was true for David. Here's, here's the lesson. We must be faithful in the lonely places and in the little things. Do you want to be ready for your giant? Then be faithful with the little things. Listen to David testifying about his preparation. Let me go back to verse 34. David said to Saul, your servant was feeding his father's sheep when a lion and a bear took the lamb. I went out after him, attacked him, rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up, I seized him by his beard. I struck and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Amen. Can we get personal just for a minute? Have you been allowing 
God to prepare you and teach you and train you so that you'll be victorious over in the big challenges of life. See, God wants you to get ready, but you and I must be willing to be his students. We must be faithful to the little task and the little challenges, the things that we come across in this Christian life in the places where nobody sees and nobody else knows. And when we pass those small tests, we're ready for the bigger challenges of life. David had already been disregarded by his brothers. He's already been overlooked by his father. He only had a handful of sheep over which he had responsibility. And at best estimate, David was a small-time shepherd, and that's a thankless job. See, sheep don't applaud the shepherd when the shepherd saves their life. Sheep don't know how to stroke the ego of the shepherd who is diligent in his task to see that they remain safe. But David used the lonely places of life just like a schoolroom, and God taught him his lessons well. Amen? All leaders, and hear me right here, all leaders are learners. I don't care who they are. Leaders are in the student mode all of their life. If they're real leaders, they always want to learn. All giant killers are leaders as well. And no one is more clearly destined to be a giant killer than the person who is hungry to learn from the hand of God. David could have wasted his school years. He could have lived his life as a shepherd in mediocrity. He could have stated, bear comes up, run the other way. Lion comes in, turn your head. Who's going to know? But who you are is measured by what you do when no one is looking. Amen? So how are you going to handle the small test of life, the little challenges? See, the occasion doesn't make you. The occasion just says, this is who you are. So what are you becoming? If you're a Christian and you're facing a Goliath right now, I'd like to encourage you. If you've been walking with the Lord, if you've been learning to trust Him, you've seen His power in times past, you're learning your lessons of courage, you're learning faith as well, but I just want to tell you, you're ready for the battle. You're going to win this battle because God has prepared you for this day. If you're not a Christian, then you're going to be, there's going to come a time in your life when you're really going to need God's help. You're going to need it bad. And I want to suggest to you that instead of waiting for a crisis to hit, turn to God now and allow him to teach you the lessons of faith and trust and courage. See, we need to be faithful in the lonely places, in the little things. This is, this is the perspective of preparation. But now, can I tell you that giant killers see what can be, not what is. Did you know that's the definition really of faith in Hebrews chapter 11? Faith is believing what you cannot see. Is that not, I'm not just condensing it, but that's what it says. This is why David was known as a man of faith. He was able to see and believe in a victory over Goliath when nobody else could see it. He was able to see that God was bigger than his problems when no one else could see it. The question that weighed heavily on the hearts and the minds of these soldiers were how big is Goliath to man? Well, that was the wrong question. The right question was when you're facing giants in your life, 
How big is this giant to the God that we serve? I have a plaque in my office that reads, when confronted with a Goliath-sized problem, which way do you respond? He's too big to hit, or like David, he's too big to miss. So you can see your giant, and you can name your giant. It could be cancer. It could be a broken relationship. It could be a financial calamity. It could be sin in your life. It gets so big and we obsess on it because giants are easy to see. But the question is not can you see your giant, but can you see your God? Behind what you can see is an ever-present, ever-loving, all-powerful, right now, righteous and holy God who loves us with a never-ending love who cares for us more than we care about ourselves. Now, now there's times when, when God is all you have. And, and people may be around you, but, but, but most won't be there through the thick and the thin. Can I throw one little political quirk in here? I just feel like doing it. it, it it's it's going to be funny. <laughs> we hear a lot about emails today, right? You know who I'm talking about. Well, last week, this person over emails and servers blended on a great general that's retired. I'll tell you one thing, old General Powell went long coming on television and said, I didn't tell that person nothing. But you see, people want to pass the blame along. When the, what's the old saying? If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Amen? That's all I'm going to say. But do you know why Saul was willing to give the armor away? You remember when it, when it got David, David said, I'll fight him. I ain't scared of him. I don't know how big David was, but he wasn't now in foot. And Saul says, here's my armor. Take my armor. You know why he gave it to him? Even though it wouldn't fit, he was the tallest man in Israel. He wasn't planning on wearing it anyway. He was just as scared as the rest of his army. And in rejecting Saul's armor, David was saying, I would rather use that with which I am familiar. And that was a slingshot and some rocks. You might think you don't have much going for you. You might think that you've been passed over. Or you've let the devil keep you under thumb. But if you let him, God will use what you have. Amen? And, and it's true sometimes when we face problems, we say, well, God, if I just had something else, I, I could get through this thing. If I had more education, I could get, if I had better friends, if I had more money, if I had a different husband or a different wife, even different children, I'd get through all of this. But instead of saying, here's what I don't have, God chooses to use what we already have. It's always been that way. See, when God called Moses to be the leader of his people, Moses talked about what he didn't have. He said, I don't have a very good speaking ability, God. I stutter when I talk. God said, Moses, don't tell me what you don't have. Tell me what you do have. And what did Moses say? He said, I got this stick here. We call it a staff, but it was, you know, a stick. God said, I'll use the stick. And all through the story of Moses, you can see how God used that stick. In the New Testament, Jesus was with a crowd of hungry people. And disciples were asking, Lord, what are we going to do? 
Jesus said, don't tell me what you don't have. What do you got? Well, we got, we got bread and fish. Jesus said, great, I'll use what, he, what you have. And he feeds the people. Now, Jesus was at a wedding one time. And the host come up to him and, man, he said, we're run out of wine. We don't have any more wine. Jesus said, don't tell me what you don't have. What do you have? Well, we got some water. That ain't wine. But when Jesus got through it, it was wine. Instead of telling God all that you don't have, offer to him what you do have, even if it seems small to you. Some people think that they're overreaching when they face a hardship in life. How do you know if this is a giant or not? If this is a giant-sized problem or I'm just running scared. Well, if you immediately know that it's bigger than you, it's probably a giant or a Goliath issue. What you and I will try to do on a smaller scale, we'll try to take care of the issues on our own. And then once we get into them and wrestle with them and fight with them, then we might conclude that, hey, this thing's bigger than I am. But when you conclude that God is your answer, you know that if you pray, God will make a way. He's not always on our time, but he's always on time. How many believe that? See, no matter how big your giant is, no matter how long your giant's been there, God is strong and God is faithful and God can knock your giant down. I read the testimony of a woman last night. Now, I, I don't know how you work with the devil and how you work with God and how you prepare things, but, but sometimes with me, I get just as dry as a, a, a dry washcloth. When I say dry, I can't pray right. I can't hear nothing from God. I don't know what's happening. I go over my life, well, I'm done this right, I'm done that right. I, I, I believe I'm walking in the, in the light as he is the light. And nothing comes. I can sit there at my desk. I can sit, I can pray, and I can't pray, Tommy. Sometimes I start off, Lord, you are righteous, you are holy. And I, and I stop, and there's a blank spell. And I start up again, Brother Kevin, you are righteous, and you are holy. And it's not coming. I feel like it hits the ceiling. And I, you, you, anybody else do that besides you, the preacher? And, and, then, and then after a while, I think sometimes the Lord lets us get to these places and go through this stuff so we, he lets us know so that we can know that I have to depend on you no matter what. If it would be teaching a Sunday school class, if it would be just getting up through a couple of people and telling them the Lord loves them, if it would be walking back in a children's church, no matter what it is, you can trust me. You can trust me in the good times is what he's saying. And you can trust me in the bad. You can trust me when you're going down. You can trust me when you're coming back up. You can trust me when you feel me and get all excited. And you can trust me when you feel like I'm on an extended vacation. But I want you to know it's not by feelings. It's by what who he is in me and how I allow him to touch my life and work in my life and stir me to the point that this is God and this is Jesus and the Holy Ghost is right there because we're living in some perilous times and we better stay focused because the awesome focus of Jesus Christ is that he's coming back to earth again just like he said he was. Amen? Amen. But I read this testimony last night. It's an old testimony, at least nine years, I believe. But anyway, this woman's name was Mary. And she lived, I guess she still lives there, in California. 
And she was sharing with her own home church about the faithfulness of God and how you can trust him in every situation. And she talks about the Goliath that she faced way back then, on up until she was married and had children. And she said, I was raised by a Christian mother and, and an abusive, non-Christian, New York, Italian father. And soon after my parents were married, my dad went into the army and served for three years. And during this time, my mother, brother, and I went to church often. And my father, or my brothers, and my father returned home from the army. Things changed dramatically. For example, one morning while mother was getting ready for church, my father came in and said, where are you going? She said, we're going to church. He tore off her dress and smeared her tube of lipstick all over her face. Then he proceeded to tear up her Bible. A few days later, my mother turned, tuned into a Christian radio program. My father heard it, and he smashed the radio to pieces. He said that he was forbidding us ever to go to church again. My father then moved us to New York, thinking that he could get us away from those fanatics in California. But he found out that there were Christians in New York as well. But after two years, we moved back to California. During the years that followed, there were many more instances of my father's abuse towards our family's love for Christ, including the breaking of the television so we could not watch any Christian programs. And yet through it all, my mom prayed daily that God would send her some form of hope. Our mailman, who was also the pastor of a nearby Nazarene church, became that hope. She would talk to him about Jesus. She would ask him to pray for her family. My mother begged my father to let us four children go to church, bargaining with him that she would promise to stay home. He finally agreed. We had to walk because mom was not allowed to use gas for the car in order to take us to church. In my high school years, my brothers and I continued to walk to church, even in the rain. We weren't allowed to say the name of Jesus in her home. We could not sing songs. We were hit and told to shut up if we were caught praying. To say the least, we were already afraid of our father. Several times he found our Bibles and burned them up in the backyard. My mother taught us to love our father no matter what. She said to love and forgive him and pray for his salvation. And she said one scripture she taught us was Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And as we got older, we started going more frequently to youth functions. My father thought we were at our friends' houses. And one day he asked my older brother if he had been to church and if he had given any money to the church. My brother answered yes to both questions. My father beat him with a wire clothes hanger and kicked him out of the house. He was only 17. I never forget how hard mother and I cried. The life that my brother was then exposed to is more than I can share. However, despite his circumstances, he went on to finish high school on the honor roll, became a star football and baseball player, and was a leader for Campus Crusade for Christ. He eventually got a job, went to Biola University, followed by Talbot Seminary, and now is pastor in his church in Washington State. My younger brother was the target of most of the abuse, for some reason, my father really didn't like him at all. That brother left home with a lot of hurt and anger. 
But he also went to Biola University and became a youth pastor in Arizona. He still remembers my dad tearing out the pages of the Bible and putting them in a fire and watching the wind carry the burnt pages up into the sky. So we always wondered what it would take to change father. I finally started to notice a small change after my first daughter was born. This was his first grandchild. She would climb into his lap and say, I love you, Grandpa. And he seemed to be softening a bit. When I was 29 years old, my father and I were in the backyard on a Christmas afternoon. I will never forget that day. My father looked at me and said, you know I love you, don't you? I'd probably said no, but not her. She said, I went to the house sobbing. Mother said, what's wrong? I said, my father just told me for the first time that he loved me. And during the next four years, we always invited the pastor of our church, James and his family, over for Thanksgiving. I told everyone that they could not tell my dad that James was a preacher. And we could not talk about Jesus nor the church. One Thanksgiving, James received a phone call and he had to leave. My dad asked where James had gone. I said, a man had just died and James needed to go be with the family. He said, why, why did that mean James had to leave? So I finally told him that James was our family pastor. He didn't respond. God was fast at work on my Goliath. Our family continued to pray. Later that day, my dad was faced with the possibility of losing his sight. He was really afraid. He was a carpenter, worked with his hands, so if he went blind, he'd be unable to work. It was the first time I ever saw my dad cry. He asked me to call James so he could come talk with him, and I know that his fear was overtaking him. Pastor came over, prayed for my dad. While they sat in the kitchen table, a miracle happened. My dad prayed out loud for forgiveness and asked Jesus into his heart. What a day. I couldn't believe it. I called my brothers to tell them the wonderful news. Then my father said that he wanted all of his children with him before he had surgery. He said that he would pay for everyone's airline tickets. So all my brothers came home. We met at my parents' house at 5 a.m. for prayer. We stood in a circle holding hands. I could tell my youngest brother was very nervous. He remembered how he got hit and beat. After arriving at the hospital, they took my father into the room to get him ready for surgery. He asked the nurse if she would please go get his four children and his wife. We came into that room, stood around his bed. He didn't know if he would ever see us again. So he started to cry, and he asked all of us to please forgive him. <laughs> he said he hadn't known how to show love or how to be a good father. He said all he had known as a child was beatings. Now the lady said, I know that that's no excuse for abuse in the family. But I came to find out years later that my father's childhood was anything but normal. It helped me to understand him better. But I'm thankful that with Jesus' help, my mother taught my brothers and I to break this cycle. My mother was an example to us that we had the choice to love and be happy in spite of our situation or to hate and act just like my father. She taught us to concentrate on the good qualities in my father and that he was an honest and a hardworking man. 
So when my brothers and I talk about our childhood now, we all agree that we would never have made it if it had not been for the diligent prayers of our mother. She prayed for my father for 48 years, and they now have been married for 57. My dad finally at 83 now shows affection with tears in his eyes and tells us he loves us. My family's been through a lot, but in the end, God slew the giant Goliath in my life. And I am one thankful David who stands in awe of my God's power. And I urge you to never cease praying. Wow. So what is your giant? Is it a relationship problem? A health problem? A sin problem? A financial problem? And what is it that might be creating fear in your life? What's causing you to stay up late at night? What? What is it that might be depressing you? What's disappointing you? What's hurting you? Whatever it is, God, the Almighty One, is bigger than anything that comes into your life. And God is bigger than any problem you have, and He wants you to know that He's for you and not against you. That He'll be with you to the ends of the earth, and He will be there to usher you over to the other side and to enter into heaven with him. There's one more point and then we're done. Giant killers give credit where credit is due. If you know anything about David, now we're not talking about David in the end, but David still loved the Lord. In, In 17 verse 46, David said, I'll tell you why I will fight Goliath. I'll tell you why I'll stand alone if necessary. I'll tell you why I'll risk my life to be faithful to the Lord. Today, he said, the world will know that there's a God in Israel. Do you hear humility in that? He wasn't saying, hey, look at me. He was saying, hey, look at my God. He wasn't saying, look how strong I am. He was saying, look how strong God is. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself. He was trying to elevate the name of God. So you and I who were born again Christians, we are trying and should elevate the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for us and how he died on a cross for us so that we could be saved and how our sins have been washed away, how we have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus, how when our heart stops beating, we wake up in the presence of the Most High God. He wasn't some cocky, arrogant teenager who said, yeah, I just need one rock. I don't need five. I'm a good shot. I'll take that sucker out. No, not David. Five rocks because he was honest enough to know his limitations. The giant just made duck and I might need a backup plan. But there's another way we can tell how humble this boy was. He wanted God to get all of the glory. Now, David was the writer of, of, of most parts of the longest book in the Bible, the book of Psalms, 150 chapters. Not one time in there did he ever say anything about him killing the giant. I believe that's humility. His heart was not the kind of heart that needed the credit. He understood that he was the man called by God. He was serving God, and he wanted to stand in a difficult place successfully so that people would give honor and glory to the Most High God. 
That's why this is not some self-help, psycho, babble kind of sermon this morning and not just beat the barriers down so you can feel good about yourself. It's all about believing that God has a plan for your life. Even though there will be giants in the day, God's got a plan for everybody's life in here. You might say, preacher, I can't talk. Don't make no difference if, if you're stone cold, deaf, and dumb. God's got a plan for your life. God will put you in a place or a position to meet somebody, to help somebody, to be there for somebody. This is not about just coming to church, sitting on a seat every Sunday. It's about growing and learning in who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus has done for you and how I can be the type of witness that can share the good news of the kingdom with somebody who might not know our Jesus and might die and go to hell if we don't tell them who Jesus is. Amen? So when David went about choosing what, what he'd go to battle with, he said, I'm going to choose God. All I need is God. He's my partner. I'm going to go to battle with him. Everybody needs help in life. Some of you in here are good thinkers. Some of you in here are good planners, visionaries. Some of you are, are good with mathematics. Some of you are good business people. Some of you are good talkers. Some of you are good homemakers. Everybody is good at something. And God says, I want to touch your life and make you into what I have called you to be. What an awesome God we serve. Some of you have been saved for just a short while. Some of us have been saved for a lot of years. But the thing is, Jesus is coming, just like he said he was. I've heard it all my life. Jesus is coming, Johnny. Serve the Lord. Jesus is coming. Heard it from my Sunday school teachers. Heard it from my mom and dad for years. Jesus is coming. Well, now you're hearing me say it. Jesus is coming. But see, the thing is, don't give up. The moment you give up, the trump of God may sound. And the dead in Christ are going to raise first. And those which are alive and remain are going to be caught up in the air together to forever be with the Lord. Jesus is coming. And we want to leave here to be with him. Amen? Stand with me, please. Hallelujah. Father God, I, re I love reading these old stories in the Bible. And every time I read what I thought was familiar, it seems like I saw something new. And that reminds me again of all the great truths that come from your word. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us that you're always bigger than our giant. Thank you for reminding us that not only will you be our partner, but you want to be our, our, our Lord and our master and our savior. You made a way for us through your son, Jesus Christ, to have a partnership with you that will last forever. And Jesus dying on the cross paid for all of our sin and all of living life by ourselves. And when he rose from the dead, he showed the kind of power that you have. And Lord, when we ask you to be our leader, our helper, you bring with that power. And I know, Lord, our people right now in this room, tired of facing their giants and Goliaths alone. And God, I pray that in the quietness of their own heart, they'll hear your voice. Come to me. I'll partner up with you. And may they trust you with their life. It's a trust issue, Lord. Help us to trust you more. Because we know that you're a God that cannot fail, cannot lie. So we trust you, Lord, and help us in every area of our life.
God, as we end this Sunday morning service, we do so knowing that we might not make it to next Sunday. Some of us could very well be dead before next Sunday, slipping out into eternity. But which direction would we go? Enter into your bosom with you in heaven or go to that place of eternal torment and damnation. So God, I give everybody, every man, every woman, every young person a chance this morning to say, I want to, I want to know everything's all right between me and the Lord. And when we can say that and honestly say it in our hearts, then we don't have to fear. We can know beyond any shadow of a doubt. We can leave this church with a spring in our step, a shout on our lips. I'm born again by the blood of the crucified one. God, I believe there's so many older Christians in this church that could share their testimonies with some of the younger ones and cause the hair to stand up on their backs and their neck. But God, how you brought them through, how you healed them, how you delivered them, how you set them free. And God, what an awesome God you are. So I pray this morning, God, if there be one here that don't know you as his personal or her personal Lord and Savior, they can know you by confessing with their mouth, believing in their heart that you raised Jesus Christ from the dead and your word says that they'll be saved. I pray that, Lord, and pray that they'll listen and let the Holy Spirit speak to their hearts. And there are men and women in this place, God, that may be struggling with some things. And there's some Goliaths in their life. And I want to give them a chance that they can loose them Goliaths and chop that devil's head off. And in Jesus' name, walk out of here in victory.